The mission of Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. Uh, if you brought a Bible with you, open to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 12. I'm calling this sermon, Our King, Priest, and Savior. As you were getting in your Bible to that place, I um, recently came across an article by Rankers, and uh, the title of the article was, Most Expensive Gift Money Can Buy. The, the article said this, quote, What is the most expensive luxury gifts you can buy for family and friends that have it all? This holiday shopping guide is for the extremely wealthy. It is here to help you decide. So clearly this is not me, probably not a lot of you, but it's, wow, to look at. This is the guide for the most ridiculously expensive Christmas presents of all time. Here it is. Number one on the list was 24 karat gold shoelaces. Don't know why you need that, but there it is. It says once you pulled, up, pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you can lace them up with these custom-made gold shoelaces made by the shoelace makers of the stars. I didn't know shoelace, the, the stars had shoelace makers, but there it is. It said only 10 will ever be made, and they're delivered to you anywhere in the world, and presumably they will fit any whatever shoe you want them to, or at least one would think. Cost? $19,000. If you're on the cheap side, they do have a silver um, um, line that's only three thousand dollars. You save that sixteen grand on shoelaces. Number two was seven harmonicas signed by Bob Dylan. The article said this: "You've seen the Bard of Minnesota in concerts dozens of times. I haven't seen him one time, but somebody has. Uh, and you've owned all his albums. I own zero, but anyways. So why not take the next step to own some musical history actually touched by the man himself?" This set of seven harmonicas, one in each key, each signed by Dylan. They come in an attractive ebony box and were made in Germany, so you'll know they're efficient and streamlined. Also, free shipping. Gosh, I would hope so, free shipping, with cost $25,000. Currently out of stock. I'm sorry. If any of you were thinking about getting that for me, don't. They're out of stock. But anyways, number three. This one I kind of like, to tell you the truth. The Bat Golf Cart. It actually looks like the Batmobile. It said, when taking breaks from defeating supervillains and protecting Gotham City and sprucing up stately Wayne Manor, Batman likes to hit the links. Uh, he doesn't mess around with any ordinary golf cart. He trundles around Gotham's finest courses in his own personalized, heavy-armored, and extremely fierce golf cart with six tires and goes 38 miles per hour. Cost $28,500. Number four on the list, his and her adventure quad skis. You love your spouse a lot, right? Sure you do. But do you love her enough to, to buy matching his and hers Vilquim quad skis? You should because these cool vehicles are primed with adventuring in both land and water. It can go 45 miles an hour, which is faster than the bat golf cart if you didn't catch that. And come with GoPro cameras to record all your shenanigans. And they come with a trip to Florida for personalized safety briefing. Cost $50,000. Number five, really, 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 really nice linens. Some place called Litten Linens, Home Dressure, I guess that's French, aren't your typical linens. With ultra-luxurious bedsheets, comforter covers, towels, shams, pillowcases, covers, and dinner napkins. I guess you have to have dinner napkins because you're having breakfast in bed with these, so they provide that. You can outfit every room in your house with threads so amazing that you'll never want to drape yourself in anything else again. They'll custom-made and arrive pressed and ready for luxuriating. 
cost? $55,000. Bed sheets, I was blown away. But anyways, number six, a super modern glass pool table. The ultra-modern G1 glass pool table will make any man cave look futuristic, like a futuristic romp room. This 15-millimeter thick glass provides shockproof surface and see-through pockets and allow you to see your shot from any room in the house. Cost? $73,000. We're going to keep going up in price if you're not seeing this. Number seven, with 100th anniversary Maserati. Celebrate the luxury of the century in luxuriously expensive cars with the 100th anniversary Neiman Marcus limited edition Maserati, Maserati Jabili SQ4. Could you imagine tuning around the streets of Warland in this thing? It says only 100 were made and goes from 0 to 60 in 4.7 seconds. Should you ever want to take it out in traffic? Premium leather? Check. Uh, lacquered trim? Of course. Rain sensors? Of course. This luxury car is for luxurious people. Cost, $95,000. Number eight, one of the most expensive sunglasses in human history. Dolce Gabbana's DG2027B sunglasses are almost certainly the most expensive sunglasses in the world. With their solid gold frame and diamond-crusted uh, studs, they'll also shave your, shade your eyes for the sun. I would really hope so with a price tag of $383,609. Two more. A gold-plated vacuum cleaner. I didn't, I didn't even ask for that, but there it is. There, a gold-plated Go Vacuum GV67-62711 is a solid piece of cleaning machinery featuring a high-performing 10-amp motor, 14-inch cleaning nozzle, and anti-marring wheels weighing a slick 16 pounds. How do you have a gold vacuum that only weighs 16 pounds? I don't know. But anyways, it's gold-plated and only 100 were in existence. The million-dollar vacuum is a ultra, it's an ultra picker-upper for the tycoon that has everything but nothing to clean it up with. Cost, $999,999. I guess, you know, $1 less they're making. I'm not really spending a million, but it's close to it. Here's the last one. A 52-carat a diamond dog collar. The, the article said this, you love your dog to give him the very best. Well, the very the best in this case is an armoire, armoire collar. A 1600 diamond monstrosity with a seven carat stone with black alligator leather is, is the collar. It's called the Bugatti of dog collars by Forbes magazine. And let your pooch know that he is the unquestionable master of the dog part. Cost... $3.2 million. I was aghast by that. There's somebody that actually buys that. But here's the question I have for us in the real world. What's the greatest Christmas gift you've ever received? How about this? What's the greatest Christmas gift you've ever given? Think about that. What makes Christmas special to you? Is it the gifts you give? Is it the gifts re received? Is it the time spent with family? What is it? Or it kind of goes like this, what makes Christmas Christmas? I think the answer is obviously it's the birth of Jesus Christ that never gets old. Because God split history, literally B.C. from A.D. with the very event of Christmas. The, the greatest Christmas gift ever given actually came from the Father's heart when he sent his Son into the world. He broke into this world to save us from our sins. 
Read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah says this in the Old Testament, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about this. Isaiah penned these words that we just read 700 years, seven centuries before the child king would be born in Bethlehem. And Isaiah, he really gives us two perspectives in that one verse. He gives us heaven's perspective and earth's perspective of the event of Christmas. For to us a child is born. That's earth's perspective. That's how we see it, that that we were given this child. And to us a son is given. That's heaven's perspective. How the father sent his son. And so the central meaning of Christmas is that Jesus was given as a gift. But here's my question to you. Do you see Jesus as a gift? Do you? Because Jesus Christ answers our deepest needs. And our deepest needs has nothing to do with material needs. It has everything to do with spiritual needs. Because the best Christmas gift is not what you want, but it's what you need. Pastor Tim Keller, he said this. He said, quote, I see that I'm not so much as a sufferer in need of a heavenly sugar daddy as I'm a sinner who needs a savior. You see, every single one of us here today, everybody watching online, everybody in this entire world, we all need Jesus. And we need Jesus in here, in our heart. We need Jesus to deal with our sins. And God the Father gave the very best gift that anyone could ever hope for when he sent his son Jesus. The first Christmas gift, it wasn't from the wise men traveling afar off to give their gifts. The first Christmas gift came from the Father's heart when he gave his son for us. Why? Because he loves us. He he loves us and he desperately wants us to be with him in heaven, so he sent his son to deal with our sins. He wants us to be with him for all eternity. God the Father went to the greatest lengths so that you and I could be with him forever in heaven. He sent his son, and he crushed Jesus Christ with the weight of all of our sins, our iniquity and shame and our filth. You see, the cross and the empty tomb proves that Jesus, the God-man, is true. And this morning, I want to spend the bulk of this message really looking at the the gifts that the the Magi, the wise men, gave as they came to worship the Christ King. Read. Let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we came to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. 
And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they, they went on their way, and behold, a star that they had seen while, they, while it arose went before them until it came and rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opened their gifts, their, 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 excuse me, then opening their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You know, only two of the four Gospels really record for us the early years of, of Christ. Mark and John leave the early years of Jesus out of their Gospel accounts altogether. Luke, he records a lot of the early years, but yet he has an emphasis on Mary, an emphasis on the census, how there's no room for the end, and also the shepherds, while Matthew's gospel really majors on an emphasis on Joseph and these wise men we just read. He says there's this prophecy in Micah that a Savior would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Read, it's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But oh you... O Bethlehem Ephratath, who are too little among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who shall be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. Ephratath, that's the region that Bethlehem is in. Uh, I would, we would kind of think of it like a county, and Bethlehem is the city. And this is the very place where King David in the Old Testament was born. If you don't know who King David is, he was the youngest of all his brothers and was really the least likely of all the brothers to be anointed king because he was the boy that was out with the sheep, the, the, the least likely. And so really, the, the unlikely choice of David is a foreshadowing of the unlikely choice of Bethlehem as being the birthplace of the coming Messiah. In the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us that these wise men came from the east. And our, our English Standard Version that I'm reading from calls them wise men, but maybe you have a Bible translation that refers to them as magi. But really, there's very little that's known about these guys. Hey, every manger scene I've ever seen always has three wise men. And, but we're not told there's three wise men. Some people say there's two. Uh, legends say there was 12. But we don't know how many wise men there was. But often we say there was three. We think of the three because of the three gifts they were given. But these kings, they did probably, most likely did not come from the Far East, but more likely came from Babylon or, or Persia. But they must have been really somebodies. Because when they enter, Matthew tells us that, that King Herod, who had an army himself and had um, tons of soldiers, he's concerned with their very presence and all of Jerusalem with them. So it, whoever these guys were, they clearly had an army of, of their own. But the real question that we should ask is how did they know? How did they know about the Christ child? How did they connect this star, whatever they saw, to the birth of Jesus? Because there's prophecy in the Old Testament that tells that there would be the star. Read all the way back to the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. The word of God says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and the scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. You see, these guys must have been taught the Old Testament. Well, then the question we should ask is, who taught them? These aren't Jewish men. They didn't have the Old Testament. So who's the guy that taught them? Most theologians suggest it was most likely the prophet Daniel. Uh, in, in the major prophets, Daniel, that was during Israel's captivity in Babylon. The Babylonians came and they took Israel captive. And one of the guys captive was a teenage boy named Daniel. And the book of Daniel tells us that he goes on to basically start this school, if you will. Well, what if the ancestors of the people that Daniel taught are actually these magi, these wise men that come from the east? The magi asked King Herod this. Look in verse 2 again. Saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. So the star, it's not in the east, it's in the west. These wise men, magi, are traveling from Babylon or Persia, coming all the way to Israel to worship Jesus. Think about the star. We don't know exactly what the star was. But it had to be something spectacular. These guys would fixate it and travel all this way following the star. Uh, so it was either the very Shekinah glory of God or some type of astrological phenomenon. I like to major on that it was the, the Shekinah glory of God. I think that would be so cool. I think that's probably what it was. But when we read this passage, what we should really see here is contrasting kings. We have these, these, these passages as wise men. We have King Herod. This is really, there couldn't be a greater contrasting king. We have these spiritual seekers versus a paranoid king. Well, what do we know about King Herod? Well, he was referred to as Herod the Great. And he wasn't called great because he had great character. It's actually the opposite of that. Um, Herod's the guy that rebuilt the temple that we read Jesus is worshiping in the New Testament. He also rebuilt the, the city walls of Jerusalem, and he built palaces and these massive aqueducts that actually brought water all the way from the Mount, Mount, uh, base of Mount Carmel to all over these major palaces he built throughout Israel. Um, some of those palaces included Caesarea by the Sea, Masada, and the, the Herodian. So his life was marked by absolute opulence, okay? Uh, Caesarea by the Sea, this is a massive massive palace that was built right on the, um, the, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so the, he went there during the summer months that the cool air would come off the, up the, the water and, and it would cool him. And then he had Masada, which was his winter retreat. If you've ever been to Israel, Masada is built on the very top of this huge mountain. He basically cut off the top of a mountain to form a 60-acre um, palace that he lived in. Yeah, he built uh, all these different aqua, or excuse me, these cisterns, huge. I, I've stood in the, in the cistern of Masada. It's absolutely huge. It's bigger than this entire property that we're, we're on today. Like, that was actually carved by human hands. Well, there's the guy that made it happen. He also built a palace in Jericho, which was another summer resort or vacation home. Herod the Great built the Antonio Fortress, the very place where Jesus was taken and tortured and mocked and ridiculed by 600 Roman soldiers. Caesar Augusta said of, of Herod, he said, it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. 
Herod was a man that had one of his, one of his many wives killed because he said that she was cheating on him. Kind of hypocritical, in my opinion. But he did it anyways. He had one of his fathers-in-law murdered because he thought he was a threat to his throne. Herod had one of his own sons murdered because he thought he, was, he, he could dethrone him. But in the very end, Herod ended up dying in Jericho. And his tomb was raided soon after his death. But compare that to Jesus. His tomb was never raided because his tomb is empty. They call Herod the great, but let me tell you, Jesus is the one who is great. While Jesus divides history from B.C. to A.D., Herod's just a footnote in history. And I think we call these wise men wise men because they worship the correct king. They didn't come to worship Herod. They came to worship Jesus. And Herod was a paranoid king, and he, he feared the threat to his kingship and his kingdom. And what so many failed to recognize, Herod wasn't even a Jew. He had no royal lineage. He had no connection to the, the throne of Israel. But yet, the Roman, the Roman was in power. The Roman Senate put him in, in charge as this puppet king to really do their bidding. But he wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. But Matthew's gospel tells us the wise men came from the east all the way to Jerusalem. They say, where's he who was born king of the Jews? Could you imagine that? Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews, and these guys come with their army and say, we came to worship the king. Obviously, I think they're inferring, it's not you. And they said, for we saw his star when it rose, we came to worship him. Pick it up, verse 3 again. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Yeah, of course he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is Christ, the, the Christ was to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophets, and O you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people of Israel. Matthew tells us these scribes are consult. And so these are the guys that copied the Old Testament. Anybody here ever copied the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi? I see no hands. Yeah, I haven't either. And these guys didn't do it one time. They probably did it several times. That was their job. So they, they knew the scriptures. And they knew this little prophecy tucked away in the book of Micah. Here's the part that just astonishes me. That though they know the entire Old Testament, they were still blind to the coming Messiah. Do you know people are like that today? There's so many people that know so much of the Bible, but yet they still reject Jesus. What that should tell us is that information doesn't necessarily lead to transformation. Salvation is not about how much head knowledge you have, how much Bible you've learned, how many verses you can quote off the top of your head. That's not it. Because there's so many people that know the Bible, but yet they don't know Christ. I've heard it said sometimes that the people often miss heaven by 18 inches. This is from your head to your heart. Imagine knowing all about Christ, but still not knowing Christ. Because it's about placing personal faith in Christ. Heart change doesn't happen just because you know a lot. 
Knowing lots of facts and lots of data, that just gives you head knowledge. And these scribes, these religious leaders, it t- that tells us it's possible to have tons of information but never be transformed because they failed to recognize Christ. Heart change takes place when you recognize who you are. We are sinners. We are desperately wicked and we need to be saved. That's why Christ came. He came as a Savior. Pick up, look in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod's a liar. He has no desire to worship Jesus. He wants to kill Jesus. Jump down to verse 16 in Matthew 2. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent, and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time which had ascertained from the wise men and fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Can you imagine? That really happened. The Herod is so paranoid that he had every male child two years old and younger murdered on an attempt to, to kill this child that would dethrone him as king. You know, often we skip, that is such a gruesome fact, we just kind of skip over that. Now, I don't even want to talk about the death of all these male children. But have you ever wondered why there's so much hostility to Jesus? Here it is, 2,000 years later and nothing's changed. Our world is violently opposed to Jesus, just like they were then. That Herod the Great would have all the male toddlers murdered that day? Families forever changed because there's this wackadoo king rounds up all the the little baby boys and has them executed? Theologians suggest because there's all these little towns in that area that somewhere between 10 to 30 toddlers in every town would have died that day. Picture that happened in our town. All of a sudden one day 30 babies die. That would devastate us as a community. Well, that's what happened that day. The grief of the parents would have been unmeasurable. All an attempt to this one crazy king trying to maintain control. But take the actions of Herod. Now compare them to what the Magi did. Pick it up. Look in verse 9. It says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star and they had seen rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, it says the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with with great joy because they found Jesus. Have you noticed that people aren't all that happy today? People aren't, in general, they don't have joy. You know why? Because people are trying to find happiness in stuff. 
That's why I'll say it. They're trying to find happiness in their career. They're trying to find happiness in their home. They're trying to find happiness in the stuff they own. They're trying to find happiness in relationships with other people. They're trying to find happiness in anything and everything other than the one thing that will bring them everlasting joy. God wants you to have joy. Not necessarily happiness. Joy is internal. You want to have joy? It starts on the inside. And that's what God does to you when he he starts to do an inside job in your heart. Because happiness is just based off the external. Okay, these circumstances. And that's what people think. They think, well, if I have this, if I have that, if my situation is just a little different, well, then I'll be happy. No, you won't. You will never find joy until you have a personal relationship with the God of the universe can only be known through Jesus Christ as your Savior. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told us in the Gospel of John? Read in John chapter 16, verse 33. This is what Jesus said. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I think that's such a cool contrast because Jesus is saying, in me, that's what Jesus is saying, you can have peace. But in the world, you're going to have tribulations. Hey, why is this world so messed up? Because it's against Jesus, that's why it is. But even in the midst of terrible circumstances, sickness and death and horrible things, we can still have peace if you know Jesus. Because only Jesus offers real, permanent, lasting, eternal peace. The question is, do you have peace? As you sit there and you hear this message, you're in your home, streaming this online. Do you have peace? If not, turn to Jesus. He's the answer you've been looking for your whole life. Jesus is the answer. Keep reading. Look in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So now in this story, we have Joseph and Mary and little toddler Jesus. They're no longer in in the manger. It's not little baby Jesus laid in the trough. That's not the the cave grotto that was really the manger. They're not there anymore. I'm going to go ahead and mess up your manger scene at your house. But if your manger scene that you have at your house has the shepherds and the magi, it's, 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 it's wrong. We still have our Fisher-Price manger scene. We got when our kids were little, that's our manger scene. And it's got the shepherds and the magi. It's wrong because they weren't there together. Because now Jesus isn't in the, in the manger. He's in a house. And the magi come to worship the toddler. He's not an infant anymore. And also we know this because Herod tried to kill all the male child, children two years and under. So he's no longer a baby. You know, I think maybe it took the wise men this long to leave when they left the, the east to come and arrive in Bethlehem to see the Christ child. And so they, they finally get there. They leave Persia, Babylon, where they left, and then they get there. And did you notice the first thing they did? They worshiped Jesus. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship the star. They didn't worship. They got this right. They worshiped Jesus. 
And so many want us to worship something or someone other than the, the correct object of our worship. The wor- object of our focus of our worship should be Jesus. And that's why we call them wise men. Imagine this. Imagine this entourage. Maybe it was 12 kings. These 12 guys with their, their soldiers, they come disturbing all of, of Jerusalem and Herod. And they arrive at this house and they open the door and this See, I see the sea of people just fall on the ground. They worship, they worship little toddler Jesus. Jesus hasn't preached a sermon yet. He can't even say a full sentence yet. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't taken a, a little boy's sack lunch and blessed it and fed the multitudes. He, he hasn't preached the sermon on the mount. He hasn't gone to the cross. And yet these men, they're worshiping him. Why? Because they recognize who he is. It's not what they're going to get. They're worshiping Christ because of who he is. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the very Son of God, the Savior of the world. They worship Jesus because he's Jesus. We should do the same. And they fell down and they gave Jesus these gifts. I want to spend the rest of this message kind of focusing on the gifts of the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh that the Magi gave to Jesus you know why you gave gifts yesterday? Why you received gifts? It, 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 we're trying to emulate the wise men. Well, our tradition of gift giving, it really comes from, from these wise men. And they gave these gifts fitted for a king. The, these gifts, are, every one of these gifts are symbolic in nature. Let me just go through the first one, the gold. The gold was given to symbolize Jesus' royalty. You know, gold then, like gold now, it's a precious, valuable commodity. And gold is a gift that you give to a king. All throughout history, gold has been considered one of the most valuable, precious metals. It symbolizes universal material value and wealth. And if you go to the Old Testament, you can read how it's used extensively in the construction of the temple. But Matthew continues to represent Jesus as a king. That's why he's sure to tell us about the gold that the wise men come to give him. Consider Matthew's intended recipients of his letter. If you don't know this, when Matthew wrote the gospel, Matthew, it's to to the, the Jewish people. And he wants the Jewish people to know that Jesus is the king. That's why he's sure to include include the gold. Because he's born in obscurity, just like David. And David was kind of the king of, of Israel. Well, now Matthew's saying, hey, there's a greater king. He, he's coming. So these men, they come and they hail and they worship the king of the Jews. But take it to us for a minute. So often in Christianity, we try to paint Jesus as our friend. And, and he is. But the truth is, we have to be his subject first. Because Jesus is the king so in order for Jesus to be our friend, first he has to be our Lord. My question, the Magi recognize Jesus as the king? Do you? Do you recognize Jesus as the king? Is Jesus the king of your life? Is Jesus king of your marriage? Is Jesus the king of your career? How are your relationships? Is Jesus the king of that? Is he the king of your time, your talent, your tithe? Is he? The question is, is he the king of your life? Or are you the king? The answer to the question really comes down to who's in control. Is it Jesus? Or is it you? 
second gift was given was gift of frankincense. I want you to know the frankincense was given to symbolize Jesus' priesthood. Frankincense, it's, it's a white substance. It's, it's made from the sap of, of a tree, and it's very costly and beautiful smelling perfume. It's only used during the very most special occasions. It was used in the, the worship in the Old Testament temple and certain events. There was only certain weddings that could afford it would use frankincense. And there are some that considered frankincense the incense of deity. If it was used in the Old Testament worship, frankincense would be taken and sprinkled over a certain sacrifice, all in a kind of a, a symbol that they were really trying to please God. But yet in the book of Hebrews, tells us that Christ is our high priest. That Jesus represents us to God. Read in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the, the good things that have come, when through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with, with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and all, for all to a holy place, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, or by the means, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ash of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, because of what Jesus Christ did, we now have um, access to God. You know, all the, all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the, the millions of bulls and heifers and, and turtle doves and all the lambs that were sacrificed, it couldn't cleanse us from sins for all eternity. That's why Jesus had to come and do it once for all. And so by, by these men offering the gift of frankincense, they're acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the, the perfect gift from God. That Jesus is the greatest gift that anyone could have received. My question to you, is that how you see Jesus? You know, if someone gave you a priceless gift, what would you do with it? If someone gave you a priceless painting, would you put it on display in your house and, and show it off? And, and that's kind of the central focus of your home, or would you hide it away? If someone gave you a very expensive gift, would you cherish it? Would you take it wherever you go, or would you kind of just treat it as common? If someone gave you an infinitely valuable piece of jewelry, would you wear it? Would you show it off? Would you treasure it? The question is, how do you treat the gift of Jesus? You put him on display. Do you cherish him? Do you take him wherever you go, or do you just treat him as common? See, Jesus fulfilled that he and he alone represents us to God. So now because of what Jesus can, we don't go to a place. We don't go to a temple. We don't go to anything. We go to a person. His name is Jesus. The last gift that was given is myrrh. Myrrh was given to symbolize Jesus' sacrifice. Myrrh is a, a bitter spice. It is similar to frankincense, but not exactly. It's a precious ointment. The main purpose in myrrh was to preserve dead. If someone died, they would basically embalm the body with myrrh. A modern-day equivalent would be embalming fluid. Is that kind of a strange gift to give to a two-year-old? 
Imagine you get invited to a two-year-old's birthday party, and you know, first come, they, they eat some pulled pork or something, and then they cut the cake, and yay, now it's time to open the gifts, and somebody gave embalming fluid. We'd probably call the cops, wouldn't we? Now, that's crazy. You wouldn't give that to any child, but the truth is it makes sense for Jesus. Because here's the truth. You can't separate the cradle from the God-man on the cross. Those two events are linked in, in history. Christianity, everything that we believe is about the cradle and the cross. The birth of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ and eventually led to the empty tomb because of the resurrection. The birth of Jesus. Why did the birth of Jesus happen? The birth of Jesus happened so the cross would happen. The cross happened so he could atone for our sins and then rise from the grave to prove that he he can give eternal life. The story of the beautiful little baby in the manger came with an express purpose. His mission was to die. Jesus came and he died so that you and I, we might live. My question is, if the wise men brought their gifts from all the way from the east and they gave to to, to Jesus, what what if they didn't do that though? What if these wise men came all the way from the east, they fall down, they worship Christ, and then they say, you know what? Jesus doesn't really want my gift. Jesus doesn't really need my gift. And they pick up their gift and they go back home. That would be unimaginable to us, wouldn't it? He's a king. He deserves the very best gifts. Well, here's my question. What are you going to give Jesus this year? Because the truth is, he doesn't need your gold. We're not going to pass a plate and say, hey, give this money. This money is going to Jesus. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your frankincense. He's already died. He's already representing us to the Father. He doesn't need your myrrh because he's already died for our sins. But what does Jesus want? Scripture tells us it's the will of God that all men might be saved. What does Jesus want for Christmas? He wants you. He wants you. The only thing that King Jesus wants for Christmas is your heart, your mind, your soul. He wants all of you. You know, yesterday, I know I got, I told my, my wife what I wanted for Christmas. I got exactly what I wanted to the, to, to T. I got exactly. And I think so many of us here would say the same thing. I got exactly what I wanted. Consider this. The God of the universe might not get what he wants. Does that blow your mind? That that Jesus Christ wants every man, woman, child to fall down, give him our our lives. But so many don't. The first Christmas gift came from the Father's heart when he gave his son. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but eternal life. And the Magi, they opened their gifts and they gave their gifts to, to King Jesus They recognize Jesus as the king, the priest, the savior of the world. But I'm asking again, what do you need to give Jesus today? God gave you his son so that you could give your life to to him. See, what happens is there must be recognized, every single one of us, that we're all sinners. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that yet we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinned. 
And the Bible says that the wage of sin is death. That means that every single one of us are separated from God because we've all willfully sinned. But the Bible also says, but yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that we are good people and then Jesus died for us. No, we, Jesus died for us when we were at our worst. And salvation comes by grace through faith. That's what the Bible says. It says you've been saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves, not of good works, so that no one can boast. No one can look and bang their chest and say, look how good of a person I am, God has to save me. No, no one's ever said that. No one will ever say that. But you have to call on him. The Bible has the most amazing, beautiful promise. It says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So this must come this moment in your life, this moment of spiritual clarity where you recognize, I'm a sinner, and I deserve hell for the things I've done. But yet Jesus came and he died for me. If you've never called on Jesus to save you, I'd ask you to do that now. So you, maybe you're streaming this message at home. You sit on your couch and you're watching this on your phone or device. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and my sin separates me from you, but yet you love me so much you came and you died for the things I've done. Lord, forgive me my sins, save me. And I pray this in the holy, precious name of Christ. Amen.